This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Will you please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter? We're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Peter this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. This letter is all about how, for the Christian, we are to view our time on earth as living in exile. This place is not our home. We are only passing through. And 1 Peter wants us to understand how we are to navigate this transitory existence. We are passing through, but we're not meant to pass by. God has great purposes for us right here, right now, as we embrace this grace-given identity of being elect exiles. So with that in view, let us turn our attention to God's Word, written through His servant Peter, inspired by the Spirit, for the good of his church. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Praise God for His holy word. May be with us now through the preaching of it for the glory of Christ. Judson University is a small school on the Fox River in Illinois. And I heard a story about a man who gets up every day there and goes down to a part of a river right outside the university and cares for a covey of ducks. He provides them shade and shelter. He feeds them. If he sees one is sick, he will lovingly try to gather it and take it to a veterinarian. On a daily basis, this man cares for these ducks every need. What's with the ducks? Well, this man is a Vietnam veteran. The story goes that one day his platoon was ambushed in a field. All around him, his friends and fellow soldiers were falling down under heavy gunfires. This man lay down and played dead. But when the enemy troops started going around, they they, they began to put bullets in the heads of each corpse to ensure that there were no survivors. They were only a few feet away from this man when a covey of ducks suddenly flew up out of the field. 
in the distraction, these enemy soldiers started to chase and fire after the ducks. I guess their meat rations must have been low. And so because of ducks, this man's life was saved. And so he loved because he lived. Our text is saying something similar to us this morning. We live. God has made our lives spiritually reborn. We are alive to hear this morning if we have placed our faith in Christ. We live. God has saved us. We live, and so God wants us to love. We live, and so God wants us to love. I think the big idea of this text that I hope we see this morning is that God has saved us by His love to make us a church family that loves one another as we live together in exile. As we live together in exile. My hope today is that we're going to see how this text shows us how incredibly powerful it is that we have the opportunity to love one another and that also that we can practically live out this love together. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Exiles Traveling Together. As we live this transitory life, as we go from this life to the next, God has not left us to live this life alone. We're exiles. We're meant to travel together. We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see how the gospel is what makes the church. We're going to see how spiritual family is what defines the church. And then how the pursuit of love is what should characterize the church. Let's turn our attention to how the gospel is what makes the church. A good backstory can make something seem precious that otherwise would seem kind of not so great. I have a friend who has a raggedy old camo jacket. It, it is nothing special to look at. It, it's not so great. It's got a big hole right, right above the right, right pocket. So that's my right side here. Right above his right pocket. But that jacket is not just any old jacket. That jacket is his grandfather's jacket from World War II. And that hole is not just any old hole. That hole is a bullet hole that hit his grandfather but bounced off because of the canteen that he held in his pocket. And so it might look like a raggedy old jacket, but in fact, it is a precious gift. Friends, there's a precious gift that we just talked about being described in these verses that we read. This whole section of Scripture is rich in biblical imagery, starting right in verse 22 when it uses this unique word, purification. We've been purified. What does that mean? Well, the image of purification is one that we see throughout the Old Testament that happens as people get ready to worship. So in Exodus chapter 19, Moses has all the people wash and purify themselves as they wait for him to come down from Mount Sinai and teach God's revelation to them. In Exodus chapter 30, we see that priests are instructed to wash and purify themselves before ministering in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. See, the ritual washing of purification was a physical sign of the spiritual reality that in order to worship God, your sins need to be washed away. Peter takes this term and applies it here to these Christians. He says, your sins have been washed away. You have been purified. You have been cleansed. How? We have been purified by your obedience to the truth. What is this obedience to the truth that purifies us? Well, verse 23 goes on to say that 
Christians have been spiritually reborn, how? By the living and abiding Word of God. And then Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40. It's a book in the Bible from the Old Testament written many, many years before this was written. He, he quotes it to ground, hey, I'm not just making up something new. Let me show you how this is what God has always been about. And he's not picking some random Bible verse to make a point. No, the, the Holy Spirit is leading him here to really interpret history. And so Isaiah chapter 40 was written when the Israelite people were living in exile. They were living in Babylon, away from their true homeland. They were a defeated and discouraged minority. And they were constantly being pressured to compromise their faith and to assimilate to the culture around them. And so this is what God promises to them in Isaiah chapter 40. He says in Isaiah 40 verse 2, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. To comfort these people in exile by reminding them of, of coming peace and forgiveness. Verse 3 goes on to say, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's a promise how there's going to be a prophet who's going to come, who's going to make a, a way straight for God. He's going, to prepare, he's going to prepare the world for God to come to the world. And when this happens, well, this is what's going to happen. Isaiah chapter forty. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And what's God going to do when he comes to this world and reveals his glory? Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom. God's going to reveal his glory. He's, he's going to show the greatness of who he is by gathering his people together and caring for them as tenderly as a shepherd cares for his lambs. And then Isaiah prophesies that all this is going to come true because, well, this is our quotation that we have here in verse 24. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Flesh is like grass. People come and go. Our promises can fail. We might die before we're able to even keep them. But God is not like us. God can never fail because He has no end. And so God's promises, His word, the word that He gives that I'm going to do these things, God always keeps His word. And Peter says that this word, this promise that God has kept, that this word that was given through the prophet Isaiah has now been kept by God in what? Look at verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, do you see what he's saying? He said, hey, what, what, what Isaiah talked about has now come true in the good news that has been preached to you. That word good news is the word gospel. It's the word gospel. It, it, it's, it's the promise that, that this good news has come true in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophet John was the one who came. And what was he, if you, know, if you know the story in the Gospels, right? What does it say John is? He is the prophet who came to do what? Make straight the way of the Lord. That's referring right back to Isaiah chapter 40. He, John the Baptist came to announce Jesus' is coming. And in Jesus, the promise of peace has been kept. As he himself is our peace and brings us peace with God. 
In Jesus, the promise of forgiveness is kept because he has died on the cross to pay for our sins, forgiving us of everything that we have done, are doing, and will do. In Jesus, the promise of God to be with his people has been kept because in Jesus, God came and walked amongst us and we have seen what? His glory. Glory is of the one and only. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep so that we could be gathered together and delivered from this world of death and given a new home in heaven with God forever. This is the truth that verse 22 is talking about. Verse 22, the truth that purifies us is the truth of the good news of God's word having come true in Jesus. The truth purifies us. We can be washed clean from our sins by believing in the truth of Jesus Christ. But notice how verse 22 describes our belief in this truth. It doesn't say you believe in the truth. It says by your obedience to the truth. See, believing in Jesus doesn't mean that you just know about him. No, believing in Jesus means that you are now living in obedience to him because of what you believe about him. See, there are some things that are true that we can believe and know that actually make very little difference in our lives, right? So I think it's true that centipedes have 100 legs. That's why they call it centa, right, centipedes? I think it's true, right? If you didn't know that, now you do. I don't think your day is going to be any different as a result, right? It's true, you believe it, but it makes no difference in our lives. But the truth about gravity, that's not only a truth that we need to know, that's truth that we need to obey, I learned this the hard way when I thought I could be Superman and I jumped off the roof and my face and the pavement had something different to say about who I was. Right? I had to, I had to obey, learn to obey the truth about gravity. See, we are saved from our sins. We are cleansed and purified, not just knowing about Jesus, but by believing in the truth of Jesus. And we can only say we, we believe in the truth of Jesus if we are willing to then obey Jesus because of what we believe. Jesus' truth that needs to be obeyed. And as, as, as we do that, as we give our lives to him, well, what happens is, is we are purified. We're cleansed of our sins. And this purification is not just something that happens to us individually. I think it's what we need to think about. Like, oh, I put my faith in Jesus, and I'm saved, and, you know, and, 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 and the salvation that I now have, right? In our, our Western culture, we only think in terms of me, myself, and I, that great trinity, Right? But that's not what Paul, Peter's talking about here at all. No, no, no. All, all, all the verbs here, all the things that are, that, are, that are being spoken about, it's not the singular you as in just you. It's all the plural as in you guys, as we like to say here in South Philly, right? And again, this is the context of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is not talking about individual salvation for one individual Israelite. No, it starts by saying in verse 1, comfort, comfort, my people. Not comfort isolated individuals, but bring comfort to my people. God promises what? Not that I'm just going to bring a sheep to myself, but I'm going to bring together my sheep, my flock. And so the context of this and everything that's happening here is that Peter's not talking to individuals. He's talking to the gathered community of Christians. God loves us individually, 
He knows each one of our names individually. He, he knows the hairs on our heads individually. But he loves us too much to leave us to just live individual, isolated lives. God loves us so much that he doesn't just want us to have an individual salvation. He wants us to know the glory of being part of his saved people, his community, his church. The word church, you might think of a building or some kind of institution, but the word church is ecclesia. It actually means the called out people, the gathering, the assembly. The church is people who, who gather together as a community through their shared faith in Jesus. And you know, the church can look a little raggedy sometimes. But this is how precious the church of God is to Jesus. We read about this in Acts chapter 20. Paul is giving instructions to the pastors at the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says to them. Care for the church of God. Here's why you need to care for the church of God. He obtained with his own blood. Friends, we need to know that Jesus died for his church. He died for his gathered people. And so like my friend's old raggedy jacket, yes, the church can be raggedy sometimes, but the church should be precious to us because of what it represents to us. We are here because the blood of Jesus was shed to make this gathering possible. We are here together, assembled. We are here together, churching, if you will. Not because we share the same political opinions. Not because we have the same ethnicities. Not because we have the same affinities. No, we are different people with different seasons of life, different backgrounds, different likes, different cares, different preferences, but we are here together, united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that makes us a church. And any church that does not unite around the gospel, any church that tries to be a church without the gospel is not a church. It might be a really nice social club. It might be a very supportive community group. But what makes the church different from any other gathering that takes place on the face of this planet. What makes the church the church is that we've been brought together by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that makes us a church. And spiritual family is what then defines the church. Spiritual family is what then defines the church. In verse 22, God calls us to love one another, and he calls this type of love that we're to have for one another brotherly love. That's a translation of the Greek word Philadelphia, right? We are the city of brotherly love. Now, I don't think we are meant to get our cues on how to love one another from the city that we live in. What's being talked about here is philia is, is, is the idea of love for family. It's, it's a family love. Maybe you don't have a lot of love in your earthly blood family. Maybe, maybe you do. But the reality is God wants us to have tremendous bonds of love for our spiritual family. If you've been born again as God's child, verse 1 of chapter, uh, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, and verse 14, and, and if you now call on God's father, verse 17, right? God's been saying this again and again. You're my child. You're my child. You've been born again. You're my child. You're my child. Guess what that means? Being God's child means you have a whole mess of brothers and sisters who are also God's children. 
God has not just saved you individually by yourself. Yes, He has saved you, but guess what? When He saves you and makes you part of His family, there's a lot of other people He's made part of His family too, and that makes us all family with one another. And God wants His family to love one another. And that phrase, one another, is really important. Did you you see that? It said, have a sincere brotherly love, love one another. That phrase is important because it means that this this is more than just kind of a a general well-wishing for Christians everywhere. We should have that. But this one another speaks to a specificity. The word here in the Greek implies that there are people that you personally know. As again, as we saw earlier when we started this letter, Peter's writing this letter to specific churches, specific gatherings of Christians. That's what the word church means. It's specific gatherings of Christians. And so Peter's Peter's writing this to specific Christians in specific gatherings. He's writing this, in other words, to people who knew one another. And so one of the main reasons that we as a church view the church membership is so important. In church membership, we are identifying, I'm a part of these people. These are my one another. Yes, we want to love Christians wherever we go, absolutely. But there's a special kind of love. There's a specific kind of love that we're called to walk out with one another. If you're not part of a one another, it's going to be impossible for you to honor God in this command. Because this is more than just a call to be nice to people in general. This is a call to bond yourself together with people and be committed to love them like family. And so um, this is what the Lord is calling us to do. And notice, this love is not just something optional. This is, this is not just, hey, you know, this is a nice thing to do if you get time to do it in your life. No, notice in verse 22, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, really important word here, for a sincere brotherly love. That word for is speaking to purpose. What is God's purpose in purifying our souls by the obedience to the truth. What's the purpose of becoming a Christian? This verse says the purpose of you becoming a Christian is because God wants you to now love other Christians. Tim Chester, in his excellent book, Everyday Church, which we actually have it recommended on our book recommendation table, he says this, brotherly love is not a byproduct of purification by the truth. It is its purpose. We have been born again for brotherly love. The Christian community is not a convenient help to individual Christians. We have been saved to be God's holy people, to be Christ's bride, to be a new family. This call is a call for us to love one another. To love one another earnestly. Meaning that this is not love that, that, that we should be compelled to something that we have to do. No, no, it's a love that should be an earnest desire in our hearts for the fellow members of our church. It's a love that should come from a pure heart. A love that doesn't have mixed motives. A love that isn't, hey, I'm giving myself so that I get this back from you. It's to be a sincere love. A, a love that's not forced or fake, but, but, but sincerely comes from our hearts. It's a love that's meant to be imperishable and enduring because notice verse 23 says that that we've been born again by what? Not a perishable seed, but imperishable. We've been born again by the enduring Word of God. 
And so as God's word that makes us born again is enduring, so too our love for other born again Christians is meant to be enduring. That's the logic of these verses. This is the kind of love we're meant to have for another. And so in other words, we're meant to have a very countercultural kind of love. This is not the kind of love that we see celebrated around us. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong. Our culture loves to celebrate love. But how easily people get offended. Just hang out on Twitter for about five minutes. How easily people cut each other off. How easily someone becomes, I'm not speaking to them anymore. I'm done with them. Right? And we just label people, categorize them, and move on from them. Friends, that's not what we should ever do as a church. We, 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 we are meant to be different. Not to be people who get easily offended and never speak. We should never buy into a cancel culture here. We are meant to have sincere, earnest, enduring love that comes from a pure heart. And Jesus said that this love, it's going to be so radically countercultural. It's not just countercultural now, it's always been countercultural. Jesus said part of why he made us to have this kind of love is not so that we look great as these loving people. It's ultimately so that we speak to, so that our lives speak to the truth about who God is. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, this is what Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Notice, Jesus keeps repeating what? One another, one another, one another. No wonder that his disciple Peter is repeating that same phrase here. See, part of the way that people are meant to see the difference that being a follower of Jesus makes in a life is through seeing how the followers of Jesus love one another. One of my favorite movies, a movie called Remember the Titans. It's a movie, if you haven't seen it, you should. Um, it's a movie that that depicts the true story about the integration of the T.C. Williams football team. It takes place in the, the 1970s. In the beginning of that movie, the white players and the black players, they hate each other. They cannot get along at all. And at the point of this conflict is really epitomized in their two star players. There's a star white linebacker named Gary and the star black uh, defensive end named Julius. And they get in fights, sometimes even fist fights. They hate each other. But as the season goes on, they learn to play together. Eventually, they learn to respect one another. And eventually, these two men form a very deep bond for another. Near the end of the movie, Gary gets in a car accident right before the championship game. He almost dies. Julius comes to see him at the hospital, but he is stopped at the door by a nurse who says, I'm sorry, only family is allowed in here. But from inside the room, Gary shouts out, what are you talking about? Can't you see that's my brother? It's one of many moments in the movie that I moved to tears. It's powerful to see how two people have been brought together. And that's just through playing football with one another. How much more powerful it should be for people to see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives by bringing us together to love one another. Friends, as we come to this church, we walk into these doors and what we should be feeling and saying is, that's my brother. Don't you see the family resemblance? That's my sister. Can't you tell that we have the same father? 
Friends, the gathering of the church is not just something we go to as individuals to worship. The gathering of the church every Sunday is a family reunion. Is that how you view your time when you come here? The gospel is what makes the church. Spiritual family is what defines the church. The pursuit of love is what should characterize the church. Notice that verse 22, where it says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice that that is a command. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't need to be commanded to do things that I like to do naturally. No one has to command me to watch the Eagles game. I will naturally do that. I'll block out my schedule for it and prioritize it. I don't think we have to be told to do things that we want. We have to be told to do things that what? Do things that are hard. And so I think the fact that this is a command means that we should expect this to be hard. Loving one another should be hard. Again, it should be so hard that it's only possible through Jesus Christ. It's part of how it testifies to Him. Our love for another is meant to be otherworldly in the sense that it does not come naturally and we shouldn't expect it to. We should expect that through Christ, we're going to have to exert effort to be able to love one another. And this passage really shows us two directions that we need to go in order to exert this effort. Two, two ways we need to direct these efforts to apply this command to love one another. Something we're supposed to put off and something we're supposed to put on. Things that we need to actively remove and things that we need to actively long for. And so first, we need to actively remove anything that would threaten our love for one another. That's what verse 1 says of chapter 2. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These things will threaten our love. Like a weed choking out a flower, if we allow them to grow, love will not grow at the same time. We need to put them away. We need to put malice away for one another. Malice means ill will. Right? We, we, we can't be okay with just not being okay with someone in the church. That shouldn't ever be okay with us. We shouldn't be okay with just thinking the worst and assuming bad motives or holding on to bitternesses, choosing not to forgive. No, Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, that if you've got beef with someone else in the church family, He wants us to go work that out before we even come to worship. If we're holding on to resentments, if we're storing up malice in our hearts, our relationship with God is going to suffer and our ability to love will be compromised. And so we need to actively work against feelings of ill will. We need to actively work against deceit. God wants us to speak the truth with one another. There cannot be deep relationship where there is no trust. And in order for there to be trust, there needs to be a commitment to speak the truth. And this is closely related to hypocrisy. When we think about hypocrisy, I think we typically think about someone who you know, says one thing and does another. But this word actually comes from the ancient Roman theater. Right? Actors would wear different masks, and these different masks would reflect different emotions. So you'd have sad face, you'd have happy face, right? you have all these different masks. And those masks were called hypocrites. And so hypocrisy is the idea that you are putting on a false face. You aren't being honest about yourself. You could be anyone under that mask. Hypocrisy is, is hiding the real you. Hypocrisy in this way is deceiving others. That's how the two are related. And so I think there's many ways that we could potentially be tempted to do this. We could be tempted to do this when we show up for our small groups. People are asking for prayer requests. 
and you know that your marriage is going through a hard time, you need help. Will you ask for a prayer for your Aunt Sue's sick cat? Because that's what's really important that night. There's a superficiality to hypocrisy. I'm just not going to get deep. I'm struggling with depression, but I'm going to put on a happy face. My heart is burdened by sin, and I'm feeling condemned, but I'm going to act like it's all good, too blessed to be stressed. You know? Friends, we can't love one another if we are unwilling to get real with one another. Now, the flip side of this is that we need to be trustworthy people who give people space to get real with us. If someone confesses a sin or a struggle and we jump down their throats, guess what? They're probably not going to open up very much. And I wouldn't blame them. When I was in high school, junior in high school, I had engaged in some sin that was really weighing heavy on my heart. And I went to a youth leader to confess it because I wasn't ready to talk to my parents about it yet. What he did in that moment was crucial. He thanked me for trusting him. He didn't downplay the seriousness of my sin because sin is serious. And it is not loving to affirm things that are wrong. He spoke some hard truth to me. But he also reminded me of God's love for me and the power of the gospel. Friends, in that moment, if he had been shocked at what I shared and if he had shamed me, if he had then gossiped about me to other people about what I shared and broken my trust, I don't know if I ever would have found the space to open up about that again. We need to be trustworthy people. But we also need to be people who give people the space to be trustworthy. We have to give the opportunity for people to do that. And I, I get that it can be hard to open up if your trust has been broken in the past. The pain of broken trust is, is real and it is hard, I know. But friend, the only way to get healed from hurts in the past is to have new experiences in the present. I don't know any other way. I don't know any other way. So I think God is inviting us here in this text to experience greater depths to our love by by being real with one another, not giving in to hypocrisy and deceit. Next, Peter says, if we're going to love one another, we also can't envy. I can't love you if I just want what you have all the time. No, love means rejoicing in the good things that others get to receive. We can't envy and we can't slander. Love means resolving to not speak poorly about someone else. Now, if you've been around a church for any length of time, you're a Christian, I think we can actually get very sophisticated in our slander. Because we're not going to outright just come out and say something nasty about someone else. That, 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 that's not how we do it. Um, we, 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 we slander through our prayer requests. Right? So, so, hey, I'm just really concerned about what these people are going through, and I think we need to pray for them, and boom, we air all their dirty laundry. You know, or, 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 or we talk about, you know, I'm going through this thing and here's how I'm hurting. Here's how, how, you know, I'm just going through all this. And we only share our side of the story, leaving a bad impression of the person that we're talking about. Or, or we say that we have a concern and I just wanted to see if other people share it. And so I want to get together with other people to see if they're seeing this too. Um, but Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, if you've got a concern for a brother, you need to go to your brother first and you only bring other people in when he hasn't first listened to you. Um, but, but we jump right past that 
and we want to get a majority on our side, we assume, oh, that person's not going to listen to me. And so we, we need to, we think the worst, malice. And so we need to talk to a lot of other people about our concerns, and we end up just slandering these people as we just go around and talk about them instead of talking to them. Friends, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and the slander, if these things are present, love will be not. There are weeds. We let them grow and don't take them seriously. If we don't actively and vigorously root them out in ourselves, we can't expect to have a loving community. These things will threaten our love. And so if we want to earnestly pursue love as God calls us to, we need to actively remove anything that threatens our love. We need to remove things that threaten our love, and then we need to grow things that fertilize our love. We need to grow things that are going to help our, our love grow healthy. And so that's why Peter does not only say, put these things away, but notice what he says in verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it might grow up into salvation. That there's this pure spiritual milk that result in greater maturity as a Christian. And what is greater maturity as a Christian? What is growing up in our salvation? It's loving one another. You're not a mature Christian if you're not in a position where you're loving other people. I don't care how many Bible verses you know. Our, our maturity is shown through our love. And so how do we grow in this maturity? How do, how do we grow up from being babies to, to being strengthened? Well, it's the same way that, that babies are, grow. That's what he's saying, that, that just as babies need milk to grow, so too as Christians we need milk to grow in our love for one another. What is this milk that Peter is talking about? Well, the word is very interesting that gets translated here for spiritual. Notice he says spiritual milk. The word here for spiritual is logikos. Now that's a form of the word logos. If you know what the word logos means, it is the Greek word for word. And so this passage really just continues. If you're reading this in the original Greek, you would see the word word popping up everywhere. God's word is what gives us life and abides in us forever, verse 23. God's word always comes true, verse 25. God's word is the good news that was preached to us in the gospel, verse 25. And this word again is the pure spiritual milk that we're to long for. Again, Tim Chester says it this way, the word, of God, the word of God that gives life continues to give us life. This is the word that will sustain us. This is the word that will bind us together. This is the word that we should crave. It is only the word of God that creates an enduring community of life and love. See, our love for one another is nourished by God's word. Why? Because it is here that we see God's love put on display for us through Jesus Christ. Christ. And so when we come to this word, then like a blazing fire, God's love shines forth. And guess what? When you come close to a blazing fire, you know what happens? You also get set on fire. And so if we want to grow, we need to long for the nourishment of God's word. But notice again how verse 25 highlights to us the Word of God that is preached to us. See, again, I think it can be very easy for us to default to an individual mindset. We hear, okay, we got long for more of God's Word. Okay, I need to start reading my Bible more. We just think about that individually in our own homes, how we're going to do that. Now listen, you need to read your own Bible in your own home. Absolutely. And you probably need to do that more. I know what even I do. Right? So like, we can always read more Bible. That is a good thing. Yes and amen. But part of what this passage is saying to us is that how our love for one another grows is by us being together and being nourished by being under the preaching of God's word together. 
Theologian Karen Jobes comments on this in her excellent commentary. She says, in Peter's thought, the regeneration of new life by God's word is inextricably linked with the external preaching of God's word. See, see what this passage is telling us is there's a spiritual bond that is formed as we hear God's word speaking to us together as his gathered church. Now, I just want to say that it's slightly awkward to talk about this since I'm the one who does most of the preaching around here. But, but, but let me say this very clearly. If you've, you've been out to our church length, any length of time, this won't be new to you. When I'm talking about preaching, I'm not just talking about something that I do. I'm talking about something that I, I also am under. You need to understand, when I'm preaching, I'm first and foremost preaching to myself. There is no sermon that comes forth from my lips that I've not first thought through in my own life. Because I think anything else would be disingenuous and not true. And so it's not just me preaching. I also am under the preaching of God's word. And so we are nourished together in our love for one another through this moment. Through receiving the preaching of God's word together. We're nourished by this. And that, that analogy of nourishment is an interesting thing. Because nourishment very rarely produces quickly recognizable results. Like, I nourish my kids every day. You'd be happy to know I make sure that my kids get fed. I'm not neglecting them. I nourish my kids every day. But I, I can't say that I see them grow from day to day. It's not like, hey, you know, they're four foot, and I feed them breakfast, and then they become five foot. Oh, my goodness, they're growing right before my eyes, right? That doesn't happen. But when I look at their pictures over the year, I can see what a steady diet of nutrition is producing. My children are growing not through one meal, but through a consistency of meals over time. Friends, I just want us to be aware of this. Few sermons are ever going to change your life. I can barely remember what I preached last week. Right? If you ask me tomorrow what I preached today, I'd be lucky if I can remember the three points I made. Right? As I'm crafting sermons, the goal is not that we are changed by one sermon. No, the goal is that we are nourished over time. And as we are consistently sitting under the preaching of God's word, that we grow up more and more into being the loving people that God has created us to be in Christ. I can't book, point back to one sermon after having preached now and been under preaching for my whole life. 30 Six, 37 years, something like that. I don't even know how old I am. 30-some years, I'm getting up there. I can't point back to any one sermon, oh, that was it. That was a sermon that just made it. No. But I can tell you, by the grace of God, being under 30-some years of preaching has made a tremendous difference in my life. Friends, milk does the body good. Being in the church and hearing the preaching of God's word that exalts Christ and his great love, oh, that does our love for another good. That's what this passage is saying to us. And so this is meant to being a priority and significance to our gathering. This is part of the heart behind why God says in Hebrews chapter 13, 4, do not neglect the gathering of the church. Now listen, we can skip a few meals here and there and not be malnourished, right? So go ahead, get a vacation, enjoy some time in a different place. Like, no problem, you're missing one Sunday. I don't think your soul's in danger. But being regularly absent, being consistently inconsistent, that will lead you to being underfed and chronic malnourishment can result in death. As God tells us not to neglect the assembly of the church, and let me just be really clear, we can't grow as Christians while also being disobedient to God's commands. 
And so I think the question we should ask ourselves is, do we agree with God? Do we agree with God, or do we treat this gathering as something that we, we only need to prioritize when it's convenient, but we don't actually think it's something we need for our spiritual health? Do we agree with God, or have we redefined our Christian life based upon some other set of standards? Friends, this, this passage encourages us. We, we should long for the pure spiritual milk. We should long to be together under the preaching of God's word. This is how we are nourished. And the reality is we live in a very individualistic culture, it's becoming increasingly consistent at being inconsistent at church. And it's something that, you know, pastors, we, we talk about all the time, right? So pastors, we get together, everyone's like, hey, what are you trying to do about this, right? It's just an issue that we have here in America. You don't have it down in Africa, you don't have it in India. Those people walk for miles to go to church, but, like, we don't want to go out in the rain, you know? We don't want to reschedule a job uh, obligation. Like, you know, a little thing comes up. Uh, we're, we're, we're worried that there's going to be rain we don't want to go out, right? Like, we're so good at being consistently inconsistent. And the, the most common remedies that are suggested are, are really this. It's like, how can you, you can make this experience more of a can't-miss experience, right? So, so a lot of people are spending, honestly, a lot of money trying to figure out how we can make church a, a can't-miss experience. And so churches are trying to bring in, well, let's bring in more lights and let's do more theatrics. Let's, let's have a giveaway. Let's, let's, what, what can we do to be high-energy? Listen, I just want to be really honest. Here at Christ Church, we are spending zero budget dollars in trying to create a can't-miss experience. We're not trying to do that. We're just trying to faithfully center our gatherings around God's Word. Because you know what? Experiences don't nourish your souls. God's Word does. And so we're going to put our attentions and energies towards this Word. And prayerfully asking God to create a hunger in people's souls for it. So as we come to a close, this journey of life, in our time of exile together on the way to our true home, as we travel, God does not want us to travel alone. He wants us to travel together. God has saved us by his love to make us a church family that loves one another as we live together in exile. So Christ Church, let's continue to pull up the weeds that threaten love for one another. And let's long for the pure spiritual milk that will nourish our love for one another. Now I do just have to say this, there is no greater joy I have in my heart than being part of this church family with you. If you are here and you're new, I'm going to be very clear, this is not a corrective sermon, this is just the next verses in the next part of the book that we're in. I'm not bringing this because I have some concern for our church. No, I want to commend you as a church. Maybe there are individual ways that you need to consider growing. I know as I read this text, there's ways that I'm provoked to grow. But as a collective whole, as a church, Christ Church, I want to commend you. I believe that we're a spiritual family that loves one another deeply. And it is my joy to be part of this family with you. It is my joy to be loved by you. There's no one else I'd want to be doing this with. I'm so grateful for what God is doing here. May he continue to be glorified as we refuse to let these weeds grow, as we long for the nourishment of his word. Let's pray.